Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure seems as though it's been quite some time since I was on the air last with you guys. And I know many of you all were um, wondering, where in the world is Kirk? Well, there's good news to report. I'm here. I haven't forgotten about you all. But as I've said before, and I could say it again, there is more to life than podcasting. Sure, I enjoy being on the air with you guys, but from time to time, um, things do come up. We can all say that. But that's all right. Uh, It's good to have um, balance in life. But I'm glad to be on the air with you guys. And um, in this uh, podcast segment of November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913 by Michael Schumacher, we're going to learn about um, some um, unique stories, which is a good thing. But we're going to be learning about things that some of us might never think are um, really all that relevant in the midst of a terrible storm. Of course, if I tell you what we might be learning about right now, then some of you are probably going to say, what's the point in even going forward? So some other stuff we should um, be expected to learn about are um, vessels, that is, uh, straight deckers who uh, survived this um tragic uh, weather ordeal along with those whom didn't, but that's not to say that we've kind of not already um, learned about that stuff as it is, but it is important that we learn as much as possible about um, survival, triumph in terms of the survival, the tragedy, because yes, there are those who survive and there are those who don't, and for those whom didn't survive, they must not be forgotten. Because after all, somebody's got to go out on the waters, especially when the skies of November turn gloomy. As I've said before, this is often a test where it separates boys from men. In other words, are you man enough to be willing to go out into the waters uh, of the Great Lakes one more time before the official shipping season does come to an end? Are you willing to go out and make a few more runs to get goods from one end to another? For those who are in need, not just from a business standpoint, but for those who live in remote uh, places where they need the goods to last them throughout the uh, upcoming winter season. So these are not trips of leisure, folks. These are trips for business purposes. And while, yes, some people could say the goods can be replaced, you as an individual can't, more often than not, a, a captain and his crew don't always have the luxury of saying no when they feel like saying no to uh, company officials. Well, I think we should all know by now that company officials have the final say, and they will more often than not tell the captain and his crew that, hey, if you don't deliver the goods on time, expect to be working somewhere else come next shipping season. So in other words, uh, captain and his crew don't always get to control the shots. Uh, more often than not, it's the head honchos from the shipping company that um, pretty much have the final say on what they um, on how things are to be run, given upon um, how a company is uh, performing. Because as we've learned by now that uh, a fair number of shipping companies, most notably Acme Transportation Company, has been uh, struggling uh, financially to stay afloat as 1913 is coming to an end. So our first leadoff question will be the following. 
Were life-saving stations equipped to handle what had taken place along Lake Huron's waters? Well, when you all think of life-saving stations, is that something like the equivalent of a uh, modern-day Coast Guard station? Possibly, but when I think of a life-saving station in 1913, the life-saving station is enhanced and it might be considered state of art for its time, but to me, a life-saving station in 1913 is going to be designed to handle um, basic um, assignments. To me, uh, one of the biggest basic assignments would be for a life-saving station uh, to have people on call or on duty if in the event a ship uh, gets too close to uh, shore where it could run aground and you need to have people on site to be able to help those aboard the boat that hit aground so that they um, won't perish. Considering that when a boat hits aground, uh, it can hit aground so fast to where, um, you know, the vessel itself can um, uh, flatten out um, the whole can rupture, goods are lost, and worst case scenario, people's lives are lost. So you do need to have people on uh, duty. And we must remember, even at the start of the 20th century, there are uh, families uh, working in lighthouses uh, around the clock, 365 days a year. So were life-saving stations equipped to handle what had taken place along Lake Huron's waters in November of 1913? The answer is no. Life-saving station crew personnel were primarily trained in assisting those stranded from their boats during the summer season when the weather wasn't so unpredictable. Well, you know, I think it is definitely fair to say that life-saving stations are geared towards the summer when, you know, People are out on the water, uh, recreational uh, matters. And, of course, you know, when, when you do something recreational, it doesn't mean that something unfortunate can happen. But if it does happen, um, what is the one thing that uh, crew personnel are not going to have to contend with? Um, well, to me, they won't have to contend with hurricane, um, with hurricane force uh, seas. They won't have to contend with, um, with anything unpredictable that would occur in uh, late fall um, in uh, November. So during the summer season, weather obviously wasn't unpredictable, whereas in November, the hurricane force winds and seas would take out just about anything in its path. So yes, it would be fair to say that life-saving stations and their uh, crew personnel would have done everything there was in November, especially in the midst of what was taking place. But we have to wonder, what are the chances that even those whom are working at these life-saving stations, what are the chances that these uh, crews are going to be able to do um, heroic deeds, given that they're going up against um, a dangerous obstacle in Mother Nature and the wrath she is throwing at those, um, at the uh, captains and their crews whom are uh, trying to get out of harm's way only to, uh, sadly, in the case with eight, uh, being eight vessels, sadly uh, met a tragic fate on uh, Lake Huron's waters where none of the crew uh, survived. Now, 
is it fair to say that life-saving stations are located near water? Well, they would have to be. Um, but whenever a storm did hit, most notably uh, from land, because we have to be reminded that when we think of storms, yes, we tend to think of them uh, along the waters. But in 1913, this uh, storm is impacting um, people's um, lakeshore properties, given that that the properties are uh, not far from the uh, heart of the uh, water or from the heart of the shore where um, the greatest uh, level of damage or potential damage has its greatest uh, impact. So when I think of um, life-saving stations near the water, what features do you think are going to be the most vulnerable to um, not only to danger, but more than likely uh, damage if the uh, weather conditions are just right. How about piers, boats, storage facilities? The piers, the boats, and the storage facilities, folks, are the ones that are going to bear the greatest brunt, a.k.a. damage. And yes, there were um, many of attempts on the part of those whom worked at various life-saving stations along uh, Lake Huron's waters, there were many attempts. But sadly, uh, for all the attempts that were done, those crew people got driven back. How, why do you think they would have gotten driven back, folks? Because of the storm's intensity. When you're dealing with um, wind gusts of maybe 80 miles an hour or just hovering over 80 yeah, a small boat that might be able to accommodate, I'm going to say uh, 15 at minimum and 20 at most. I mean, that doesn't seem like a small boat, but when you think about taking a boat of that uh, size out into the water, it's no match for nature. It's no match for what you are going up against because Mother Nature is going to have the upper hand. Sorry to to sound negative, but the reality is that no matter how hard we try as humans to do something valiant in a, in a time of, of a perilous storm, it doesn't mean that the outcome is always going to be to our disadvantage, but we must keep in mind that whenever we're trying to do uh, what well, we, in some instances, could be a search and rescue mission or a mission to try to save uh, those whom are uh, out on the water, They'll, we'll do everything we can to make every good faith effort to rescue those stranded. But Mother Nature, more often than not, will call the shots to where our uh, good faith efforts, if in fact our good faith efforts can be met. Did a life-saving station uh, respond uh, right away after hearing what happened to the Howard M. Hanna Jr.? I think it was about two podcasts ago we uh, learned about the Howard M. Hanna Jr. And I know many of you all were wondering whatever happened to this boat and not just so much whatever happened to it, but did anyone survive? Well, I think now is a good time to uh, get back into talking about the Howard M. Hanna Jr. But the answer uh, to the question, uh, did a life-saving station respond right away after hearing what happened to the Howard M. Hanna Jr.? I do have some good news to report, and that answer is yes. The Point O'Barks Station, and when I say O, folks, I'm not saying O-H. 
point aubarx, A-U-X. So to me, that sounds uh, like a little bit of French right there, folks. Point aubarx station near, near Port Austin uh, did, in fact, respond right away, considering its own facility already endured damage to where its dock and boathouse didn't have much left standing, including its surf boat covered in sand. Wow, I'll tell you, this storm, you know, yes, it's doing damage to structures, but what we also have to remind ourselves, too, is that even objects like a surf boat can get covered in sand left and right like there's no tomorrow, given that the winds are moving at such a fast pace or gusting at um, speeds that, to some of us, are just unimaginable, 80 miles an hour and over. I could see how an object like a surf boat could easily be covered in sand in a short amount of time. And we're not just talking a couple of scoops of sand, folks. We could be talking about I don't know, maybe a foot of sand or, or a couple of feet of sand. The bottom line is, is that nature has all kinds of curveballs up her sleeve, that is Mother Nature, to where sometimes we don't know just um, what the end uh, outcome will be. Point Albarks Lighthouse. I found this to be interesting. It was originally built from stone along the shores of Lake Huron in 1848. That's 13 years before uh, the Civil War occurred, folks. This lighthouse certainly endured the storm's wrath. It was an 89-foot tower, and believe it or not, she shook throughout the storm. Usually when I think of a structure shaking, folks, to me that would be like the equivalent of an earthquake happening because, you know, structures, building structures can shake in an earthquake to where uh, damage can be, um, it could either be minor, it could be um, mild being, um, or it could be moderate rather, I should say, or it could be uh, severe. So for this tower to shake throughout the storm, you would almost have to wonder, is this tower going to survive? Yes, she's made of stone, but that doesn't mean that just because she's made out of stone that she would survive um, a hurricane or hurricane force winds that are so unpredictable to where even the um, the tallest of structures might still be standing after the storm's over and done with. So because this tower was shaking throughout the storm, the candle's wick was constantly slipping downward into the lantern that's a problem right there. The bigger question is that this now that this candle's wick is constantly slipping downward into the lantern, what what would be the last thing you'd want to have happen? You don't want vessels out on the water to now all of a sudden think, wait a minute, the lighthouse light's not working. How are we gonna know where we're navigating in the midst of a terrible storm? Are we gonna know how are we going to know just how close we are to the shore so that we don't run aground? Well, a father and son duo did some pretty amazing work. Peter Richards, who is the father, and his son Leland, they kept an around-the-clock watch for three consecutive days nonstop 
Okay, folks, three consecutive days nonstop. This means that neither one of them went to sleep for three hours or more. I'm sure they were doing everything they they could to stay hydrated and stay awake. I mean, because it wouldn't take much to fall asleep, but you've got to be uh, vigilant because uh, when you're dealing with a storm, it's up to you to keep the light on, not just for your own good, but for those whom are out on the waters um, struggling to survive. So Miss Peter Richards and his son Leland um, went constantly, um, they constantly went about relighting the lamp after it had gone out as a means of warning boats within the vicinity of shallow waters not far by. It's one thing just to keep relighting the lamp to make sure that, that, the, that the lighthouse itself hasn't um, lost its power, but it's a means of warning boats within the vicinity of the shallow waters not far by. You know, of course, when I think of um, objects that could be near shallow water, think of uh, the shoals, like the sandbars, um, the reefs, you know, that if a ship is getting too, too close and it ends up running aground and hitting the sandbar and the reef, all, um, all hell can break loose. The Point O'Bark Station did have a small lifeboat, but it was no match for the heavy seas which drove it back to shore after the life-saving crew had made a good-faith rescue, rescue attempt effort. The Point O'Bark station reached out to other life-saving stations nearby, but they too were faced with their own rescue effort missions. So, it, to sum it up here, no life-saving station was immune from what, um, from what the storm um, brought about on Lake Huron's waters. Every life-saving station was in a fight for its own survival. Would Do you think it would be fair to say that other life-saving stations would have gone above and beyond to help another one? Sure, but they're all in this together. And while, yes, they could assist, at the same time, assistance to help another station could be minimal, largely in part because of all the other rescue effort missions going along. It is worth pointing out uh, that uh, I did some research on this, that uh, Point O'Bark's lighthouse is in the top 10 for um, oldest lighthouses in Michigan. And it's still around today. Uh, it is open to the public uh, for uh, tours as well as for being able to uh, go up to the top of the lighthouse. And as uh, and I'm sure many of you all found it uh, fascinating a couple of podcasts ago that um, I'm sure many of you all were very intrigued to learn that Michigan is has more lighthouses than any other state um, along Great Lakes waters uh, as well as in uh, America. When you consider, you know, four of the five Great Lakes um, harbor Michigan, it makes practical sense to be considered uh, probably the queen of um, lighthouses along uh, Great Lakes waters. Now, how would the uh, crew of the Howard M. Hanna take matters into their own hands? You know, you've got to wonder, how much more time does the Howard M. Hanna have in terms of her crew? Well, for starters, the crew had only one lifeboat left. This one lifeboat, believe it or not, had not been taken away by nature's forces. The other lifeboats had. 
But secondly, the crewmen toughed it out by wading through water and ice. Think about it, folks. You've got icy waters. Not, I mean, not what I mean by icy, yes, cold, but there is ice along these waters. Nine of the crewmen got into the boat, and by 7.30 a.m. on Tuesday, November 11th, the lifeboat was lowered into Lake Huron. And two hours later, around 9.30 a.m., a crew of nine men in the lifeboat made it across the life-saving station's vessel. In other words, they were able to make it to uh, Point O'Bark's lighthouse to say, hey, we are in need of assistance. We've got other crewmen aboard our boat whom need help, but we can make this happen. So the rescue boat eventually was able to reach the Hannah, but the rescue mission alone took two trips to transport the entire crew to shore, being safety folks. The Hannah uh, was a total loss, and for a while, believe it or not, folks, she stayed afloat on the reef, which she collided fiercely onto, and as for the public, being everyday people, they not only came to visit the wreck site, but they also removed uh, what was left of the coal. They removed what was left of the coal, not for souvenir purposes, folks, but for heating purposes considering that a lot of services are um, are not uh, able to function, probably, because of the storm's impact. Yes, some people could say this is being vandalism or theft, but I don't see it as theft. I see it as uh, people that are not uh, bragging about what they've done, but more about um, as a means of survival, given that they've never encountered anything so catastrophic like what's happened now. But they are also in a fight for survival, not just short-term, but long-term, because for many of the uh, public in the greater communities, they don't know how long they're going to be without power, but they also have to find um, whatever necessary means that it will take to ensure that there is some form of a heating relief. And of course, how ironic we've learned from a previous podcast how um, crew on some of the ships actually went about uh, burning uh, pieces of wooden material on their ships to stay warm. You know, yes, it might seem unheard of or unthinkable to have to take wooden furniture, but remember, wooden furniture can be replaced. Anything wooden can be replaced, for example, but what about your life? That can't be replaced. So the bottom line is you have to do things that are uncommon when it, when the time comes to, to be uncommon, especially if it means, um, if it comes down to what we think of as uh, being life and as a matter of life and death. Now, um, I know a while back we talked about the Elsie Waldo, and she apparently had some struggles on Lake Superior. So what what became of the L.C. Waldo, given she was fighting for her life along Lake Superior's waters? Well, for starters, two rescue boats, one per each life-saving station, were sent out on the waters. That is, Lake Superior's waters. Secondly, um, there was some wreckage from the Waldo's pilot house that came ashore near Marquette, Michigan, which is in the... Um, which is in the middle part of uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula. 
So once the once uh, wreckage, most notably from the Waldo's pilot house, came ashore around Marquette, rescue crew um, teams, being from these two rescue boats, began to fear the worst. However, um, luck would come their way in that um, a 99-foot uh, tugboat by the name of Daniel H. Hebbard, or Hebbard, H-E-B-A-R-D, met the two rescue uh, boats at Portage Entry at Keweenaw Point. The Daniel H. Hebard would go about towing the rescue boat uh, to the Waldo, where upon arrival they feared the worst, only to hear the following, Ahoy! Ahoy! Meaning that um, help has arrived, and that the worst fears can now be set aside and that there and that there is um that there is hope the entire crew is alive on the LC Waldo but there is a problem folks this isn't Houston we have a problem the problem is from within inside the Waldo the entire crew is trapped inside by ice on the doors can you imagine now folks not being able to get out of a door because there's ice? You know, whenever I think of um, of uh, circumstances that are a matter of life and death, um, more often than not, I tend to think of airplanes. Airplanes making emergency landings. And I've seen this uh, on various times on a TV show that many of you probably have watched on the, uh, on the um, Smithsonian Channel called Air Disasters. I know that doesn't sound pleasant of a, of a show maybe to watch, but the thing that I'm always intrigued most by air disasters is, for one, you know, it's easy to think that nothing can happen to airplanes given that, you know, for one, we're, people are probably more likely to die in a car accident than they are um, by airplane. But when airplane uh, misfortunes occur, it is shocking because then we have to wonder how do these things happen? Well, like cars and trains and even ships, airplanes have a mind of their own, too. Um, and so, therefore, uh, more often than not, when airplanes make emergency landings, what is the first um, big issue that a crew would have to take into consideration? Is making sure that the doors will open properly. And once the doors open properly, to get the, the, um, the mats um we call it uh, ejected to where people can safely go down the mat uh, so that um, so that there's not a loss of life. But of course, when a plane does make an emergency landing and uh, smoke is um, burning so quickly, it, it can be a matter of life and death in a matter of minutes. So for these uh, crewmen aboard uh, the LC Waldo, only to have ice on the door and not be able to, to get out, that is scary because you have to wonder how much longer can we as a crew survive if the rescue teams that have come to get us cannot get us out. So my question to you all is, what was the only solution viable? The only solution that became viable was for these for the rescue boat crew, the rescue boat crewmen on both boats to break down the doors 
literally, folks, they're going to have to break down the doors. So given how close the rescue boats were in relation to the Waldo, the lifeboats were facing challenges of their own. They were moving up and down on the rough waters. Think about it, folks. They didn't have calm waters to deal with. They've got waters on that are bobbing. You know, they're not staying in one place. It's constant fluctuation where I'm sure many of us, if we were not um, experienced, um, what do you call it, uh, rescue crew people, we probably would get seasick to the point where we probably wouldn't have it in us to sadly be able to perform our duties. So, so I can't imagine being on one of these lifeboats and all of a sudden we're moving up and down on rough waters, not staying in one place. The lifeboat crewmen feared what could happen to those aboard the Waldo as their situation became a matter of life and death. I can't imagine that. Seeing uh, a crew of 20 or more people um, praying that the people out on the water, being these um, rescue boats, are going to be able to do their job because nobody wants to come away being remembered as the party that wasn't able to save those whom were um, trapped inside because of ice on their door. The H.C. Waldo crew jumped from their vessel's deck into the lifeboats without a single loss of life. The Eagle Harbor and Portage Lake life-saving stations received uh, recognition for their bravery in saving the entire crew of the H.C. Waldo. Each station got a certificate, including a Medal of Honor, rewarding their service. To me, this is an act of God, knowing that the, um, that the entire crew of the uh, Waldo was trapped inside by ice on the door, and yet somehow the, um, an act of God did prevail. God was looking after these men. And yes, God, you know, we have to remember God was looking after those whom didn't make it. But it is um, amazing to know that, yes, there were those who survived. And it is amazing to think that there were, uh, vest that there were uh, lifeboats from life-saving stations that were able to um, achieve the um, unthinkable. It wasn't that nobody else told them they couldn't do it. It's just that Mother Nature was in the way. Mother Nature, you know, wasn't going to let up. But this was not a this is not a story of man triumphing over nature in this scenario right here with this particular situation. It was more about man being determined to do what was best for his fellow um, comrades, knowing that twenty some men um, their lives were in danger, and that okay. We're going to do everything we can to get to go out there and save them. And that's what happened, folks. A crew's life was saved. Not, I mean, we already, it's fair to say that there were some other um, boats whose lives, whose entire uh, crew were saved, but it's just nice to hear that another crew has been completely saved. And that those whom came to the rescue, being the Eagle Harbor and Portage Lake life-saving stations were properly recognized for their bravery, and rightfully so. Now, we're going to get into uh, talking about some things that are going to seem somewhat odd, but believe me, 
they do uh, bear some uh, relevance to the storm that has um, that has taken place. Uh, what's unique about the searchlight being a tugboat? Now, believe it or not, folks, there was a tugboat named the searchlight. Well, it turns out that this tugboat had operated out of Harbor Beach, Michigan, located on Lake Huron, but it operated out of Harbor Beach seven years earlier, back in the fall of 1906. She disappeared out of nowhere, only to be taken outside the breakwater's confines, being the barrier, um, you know, she was taken out of her barrier's confines. A search and rescue uh, mission was conducted, only to have um, found out that uh, five men lost their lives. During the height of the storm from 1913, the mysterious, um, the storm itself brought something back as a, as a surprise. The tugboat resurfaced. How did this tugboat resurface, folks? It didn't come up altogether as one piece, but it resurfaced as a means of um, debris coming ashore, and sadly a deceased crewman's body showed up. It is fair to say that even after um, years from, uh, we call it from uh, past um, incidents, that even the Great Lakes don't give up their dead, no matter how how uh, far past an incident occurred, there are still secrets that, um, that remain locked. There are still secrets that can be revealed. And what do you know? An incident that had occurred seven years before, 1906. Remnants of the wreckage, and sadly a deceased crewman's uh, body, were, um, came, up, came ashore. It's just a stark reminder, folks, of how um, of how cruel sometimes Mother Nature can be, not just in the form of unleashing bad weather, but what can come upon the shores in the aftermath of a violent storm. What can be brought up? We have to remember that this debris wasn't miles and miles below uh, to the deepest depth of Huron. It's just that um, somehow this wreckage was floating, but the wind and the waves were so strong and the seas piled so high to where, yeah, what whatever is below can resurface, and it can resurface in ways that we can only fathomly imagine. Let's learn about a fellow captain named Louis Statunsky. Was Captain Louis Statunsky on a mission like none other before? I think it'd be fair to say yes, considering all that has uh, happened. Uh, for starters, he brought the James H. Martin back to Goal Island with the overall intent of returning to another vessel being the Plymouth that was in the middle of Goal Island a few days later. The Plymouth would be sent to a place called Search Bay, the Plymouth was a tug vessel. Once uh, having arrived back at Goal Island, uh, the Plymouth 
was no longer at her original um, midway spot on Lake Michigan. Okay, so something's not good here, folks. Uh, a few days after Tuesday, November 11th, the wreckage from the Plymouth emerged, including hatch covers and lifeboats. Coming ashore near Ludington, located in northern Michigan, and on November 22nd, I found this to be very, very um, tragic or very um, sad because of um, really because of of what happened. And pay very careful attention. On November 22nd, a crumpled up note placed in a bottle washed up around Pentwater, being a town on western Michigan's coast. It confirmed the fate of a fellow um, man by the name of Chris Keenan. I know many of you all probably have never even heard of this guy's name. I didn't know about his name until I read the book, but uh, Chris Keenan was a U.S. Marshal. He was assigned to guard the uh, tugboat, uh, the Plymouth. The letter Keenan wrote was for his family, and it's best described as being somber. In other words, it might be fair to say that Chris Keenan was writing his own fate, telling his family that that he was probably not going to come home alive, that he was also writing to his family to say, hey, just I just want to let you all know that I loved you all. I loved you all with my heart. But I want you all to know that I died a hero's cause, that I was willing to put my own life on the line when other people probably would not have been willing to do this. You know, somebody has to, um, regardless of a position you hold on a Great Lakes vessel or a, a straight decker, even U.S. Marshals have to go out into the month of November, especially when the skies are turning gloomy. They have to, they have to do their part. Anybody who's associated in the shipping industry, they have a duty, or they have duties and jobs to perform um, all year round. But when it comes to November... It's just one of those times where people's lives are at stake. They're going to be those whom survive. They're going to be those who don't. But those whom perish on the waters must never be forgotten. And for Chris Keenan, for, um, for his letter to have been found in a bottle, we need to be reminded that not all messages in a bottle have happy endings. This one sadly didn't. Did Chris Keenan ask for his ask for this to happen to him? No, but he wanted someone out there to uh, see this letter. He wanted someone out there to to realize that hey, there were uh, men like Chris Keenan himself who made the ultimate sacrifice. And uh, tragically, his body did turn up ten miles north of Manistee. Uh, located 80 miles from where the Plymouth had originally been left. Manistee is up in uh, northern Michigan as well, too, not too terribly far from the uh, mainland um, or what we call the uh, Mackinac Bridge area, which uh, connects the um, Upper Peninsula with the mainland of Michigan in the, in the same vicinity as Ludington is. And Traverse City is up that way as well, too, um, as well as uh, Cadillac, uh, Norton Shores, now, uh, who is a, a fellow by the name of Robert Turnbull? He is a resident of St. Joseph, Ontario. And why is he important, given that he's just a, an everyday average Joe resident? 
Well, he owned a, a lakefront farm, and he went to check on the property as well as determining overall damage because St. Joseph, Ontario, obviously wasn't spared by this storm. So he obviously is doing what any uh, responsible homeowner would do. He, he wants to determine what the overall damage has come to. But instead of, but instead of seeing um, grave damage, I mean, he probably saw some damage, but he probably didn't see grave damage. He spotted something moving up and down in, in waves that really, really got his eyes. And this object was coming all the more closer to shore, folks. In the end, Mr. Turnbull determined that the object, folks, was a deceased um, human. Deceased human being who moved forward and back as each wave had moved the deceased person all the more closer to shore. I can't imagine, folks, uh, being Mr. Turnbull, and all of a sudden you are seeing a dead person whose body is moving constantly forward and back with each wave. To me, that's it's scary. To me, it's, it's, it's sad knowing that that was someone who lost his life in a storm that had never been seen before. I mean, yes, there have been storms before, but not like this one. Well, this was not an isolated encounter. It turns out that for Mr. Turnbull, his encounter would eventually result in the first of many other sailors whose bodies came ashore, who, came, who whose bodies came near ashore only to drift onto land. More sailors coming ashore meant to those whom survived. It was meant to serve as a reminder of just how lethal November's fury had truly represented itself. I would truly say that November's fury has fully shown its um, its full scale nine yards, the full nine yards impact here, folks. It's one thing to have one or two men wash ashore, but to have 50 and more sailors washing ashore their bodies, it's sad. It's a stark reminder of just how cruel the month of November can be. It really is. We almost have to wonder, do these shipping companies care about their employees? One would like to think they do, but at the same time, is too much being expected from a, from a, a captain and his crew by the shipping companies in the month of November? I'd like to think so. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind that there are uh, plenty of captains and their crew whom are willing to go along and do this. Because it's the name of the game. And it's been the name of the game prior to 1913 and after 1913. But if it makes any of you all feel uh, comfortable to know that, um, that since 1975... Um, or since November 10th of 1975, which was the night that the Edmund Fitzgerald went down on Lake Superior's waters, 
in 47 years since that time, there has, nev there has not been another shipwreck on any of the Great Lakes waters. There have probably been some close calls, but there has not been the loss of life or the loss of an entire crew aboard a ship since November 10th of 1975. So knock on wood, 47 years. Let's hope it stays that way, but hey, no matter how sophisticated our technology has come, especially in the last 47 years or let alone in the last 110 years, remember who still gets to call the shots, Mother Nature. Was the Wexford, I think this one's really worth learning about, folks, uh, the Wexford. Was the Wexford, being a 250-foot package freighter, similar to straight-decker ships? No, the Wexford uh, got referred to as a tramp steamer. Now, I know a tramp, <laughs> the term tramp steamer may not sound um, appealing, but there's a reason why it's referred to as a tramp steamer. Tramp steamers were referred to as vessels that did not have set schedules. In other words, they didn't have a set itinerary. Theirs was um, a schedule that did not include regular immediate stops. The Wexford conducted business through, um, like any other uh, tramp steamer ship, uh, the Wexford conducted business through what was called a spot or a cash market being a public financial market where the where all the commodities got traded for instant delivery. So basically these vessels are um are hired hands. In other words, they are not through a company like say Acme Transportation Company. They are uh really in a sense like a third party option. Um in other words, if we can't find other vessels whom whom can uh, perform the job at stake, then we're going to have to hire from the outside. And it turns out that in uh, England, how ironic that the Wexford was actually built in England, she was about, um, well, I better, I'll hold off on that part. Um, the, the Wexford, yes, was built in England, and given that she was a tramp steamer, she hauled less cargo versus the straight deckers. The straight deckers, folks, could hold, um, excessive sums of um, of cargo but these tramp steamers like the Wexford are known for transporting grain coal salt iron rails and what's unique about um, the Wexford folks well she's a steam-powered ship and by the mid-19th century steam-powered vessels become more profitable than sail to where moving vast quantities of coal became essential. Think about it. England is not only producing coal, but transporting coal to um, various uh, major uh, cities in England, but also to other uh, places in the world. So when I think of industrial uh, cities in England that are uh, going to be uh, not only producing coal, but moving it in vast quantities, I think of Manchester, uh, Liverpool, the cities north of London that are going to be the ones uh, not only making this coal, but transporting it to uh, the big metropolitan areas to the south, most notably in uh, London. So going into 1913, the Wexford was 30 years old. 
but 1913 uh, prior to November had not fared well for the for this tramp steamer. On August the 17th, the Wexford, while sailing in fog, had run aground around Fog Island, resulting in extensive repairs, making Western Steamship Company officials not happy. Well, hey, if your ship <laughs> needs extensive repairs, wouldn't you want those extensive repairs to ensure that your ship is going to be okay uh, long term? I would, I would want that, but we also have to keep in mind, too, folks, that the longer these ships are... Um, or on the docks for repair, for repair purposes, what does that mean? Less time out on the waters, it means less revenue. So we have to remember that the officials folks want what? They want money, they want revenue. More money in their hands means uh, greater means of uh, rewarding captains and their crew with bonuses, especially if they're willing to make a few extra trips before the season ends. That's why many of these crewmen are eager to go out on the water one more time. It's because of the bonuses. Hey, bonuses are great, but at the same time, do you really want to be playing with your life just to earn a bonus? <laughs> bonuses could come at any time, but in our eyes, but we have to remember that for these company officials, the bonuses aren't going to be really issued until the very end. And that means asking those whom have already gone above and beyond to go out and do the same things again. So the Wexford's last trip in November of 1913 was to Goderich, Ontario. She was transporting 96,000 bushels of wheat. She left Fort William, Ontario on November the 7th and made it through the Sioux Locks in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. November 8th would be the the, the last time that anyone spotted the Wexford along Lake Huron's eastern side. She was battling large seas, but did so without any problems. Believe it or not, she was only 20 miles from her final destination, being Goderich, Ontario. But sadly, she never made it. What happened to this ship? Did anybody actually watch the ship sink? No. Sadly, nobody did. I mean, no, nobody actually saw firsthand what happened to the ship. But there are those who believe, or possibly believe, that come midday on November the 8th, the seas became harder to navigate, which meant decrease in visibility. The Wexford's captain blew his whistle many of times, but no help came as the weather deteriorated. The boat was taking on more water, or I should, rather I should say the steamer was taking on more water than the pumps could remove. So remember folks, when a ship is taking on more water, that means its pumps are not going to be able to, to work uh, as efficiently in getting the water out. You know, a pump can only take, can only remove but so much water out for all water coming in, especially when it comes to a, a terrible storm like this where water is coming over the rails and then uh, making its way into the cargo holds. And when that happens, it's going to the pumps themselves will become extremely stressed to where they might just virtually break. So because the pumps are not able to, to remove um, the vast quantities of water given at the same time the boat is taking on more water, the crew was forced to do none other than the following. Abandon ship! Abandon ship! 
Sadly, um, on November 11th, many of the Wexford's possessions washed ashore, including bodies of deceased crewmen. Well, we have learned our share of uh, some triumphs, and we have learned our share of some tragedies. All in all, we've uh, learned um, a lot of uh, relevant information. Now, I just want to let you all know that um, I'm going to be on assignment um, in the coming week. So if you all don't hear from me uh, for a while, I don't want you all to think I have forgotten about you all under no circumstances. But just because I'm on assignment, it doesn't mean that, um, that I'm not going to enjoy myself. I am. But one thing I do know is that when I come back from being on assignment, I will look forward to being on the air with you guys. So uh, continue to uh, listen to the podcasts, but most important of all, continue to get the word out to those whom are eager to learn more and tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless. And if they choose to join Anchor, just let them know that the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Thank you for your time as always. And when I am on the air again next after uh, coming back from being on assignment, one thing we will uh, learn about is um, the process in terms of how um, people's um, bodies were identified or how um, how uh, vessels um, were determined um, to be uh, those of a particular uh, ship, or rather I should say not so much vessels, but lifeboats. How were lifeboats determined in terms of which ship they came from, given that so much has uh, come ashore. So to sum it up in a nutshell, when I'm on the air again next time, we're going to be learning a great deal about what all came ashore, but how those uh, matters were uh, tended to. Because even, it's fair to say that even finding um, deceased crewmen washing ashore, as well as life jackets, lifeboats, and anything else that is of a relevant uh use does have a story onto itself to share or rather to be told well thank you uh, again for uh, listening and um, i hope all of you uh, continue to stay safe uh, no matter where you live thank you